Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. It was my intention to finish verse 32 this morning. But the more I spent time in it and meditating on it, the more I discovered that we need to kind of slow down and ponder each and every one of these virtues of which Paul speaks because of their importance and significance, but also because of the lack of them in the lives of many true believers today. Verse 32 of chapter 4. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Let's pray. Father, I, I would never want to endeavor to seek the truth in this verse without seeking, first of all, your grace and your favor. For, Lord, these virtues are foreign to our nature. Without the Holy Spirit of God, Father, Lord, none of these things could ever be known, exercised, received, or imitated. Father, I pray that you'd help us as thy children to understand their significance. And also, most of all, I pray that, Lord, you'd help us to be reminded of how kind you've been to us and how tender-hearted you are towards us and how forgiving you are towards us because of Christ. Lord, we live in very perilous times. There's a lot of enemies of the cross. There's a lot of false doctrines, false teachers, false religions. And so often, Father, we get caught up in the fighting the good fight, the faith, warring the warfare, the spiritual warfare, that, Lord, we tend to ignore and forget these virtues which are just as vital as wielding the sword of faith in our Christian life. Father, I pray that, God, you'd help us to maintain the balance. I pray that you'd help us to understand this morning, Lord, these wonderful virtues. I pray that, Father, they would grow and cultivate in our hearts and our lives, and that, Father, we would, by your grace and by your spirit and by your mercy and truth, be able to be examples of them to others. Father, we pray you'd be honored and glorified in all that we say and do. In Christ's name, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. I... I truly believe that these verses here at the latter part of chapter 4 are the monumental climax to what Paul has been emphasizing here in this entire chapter. Especially when one considers that this fourth chapter of Ephesians is not only very unique and unequaled in its divine exhortation to Christian love and unity, but also because this divine exhortation or these exhortations in chapter 4 follows in the shadow or on the heels of some of the greatest doctrines concerning our most holy Christian faith and the glorious salvation we have in Christ, beginning in chapter 1 of our divine election. Proving, again, which Paul does in every one of his epistles, proving that the surest evidence or proof 
of our truly understanding such divine truths are not seen merely in our professing to know them or our ability to define them, but more so in our lives, our conduct, our character are divinely shaped and transformed by them. That's the truest evidence of us of our understanding the doctrines of our holy Christian faith. It's easy to define them, to speak of them. But the question is, have they transformed our character, our conduct, our lives? That's the greatest evidence of our truly understanding and receiving the doctrines of our holy Christian faith. And Paul proves that in almost every epistle he writes. In Romans, for example, in the justification by faith alone, without the works of the law. In chapter 12, he begins, he said, Therefore, brethren, because of everything I've said about justification, present your bodies a living sacrifice. And throughout Scripture, even Christ himself would stress and emphasize, if you've truly understood what I've said to you, it will change your life. God's truths are life-transforming. It's like Christ said in John 13, and it was in regards of washing the disciples' feet in humbleness before one another, but actually in all things that they've heard. He said, if you know these things happy, happy, that's supremely blessed. That word happy is the same word he uses in the Beatitudes. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are they that weep and all those. He said, if you know these things, happier, supremely blessed are ye if ye do them. John thirteen seventeen. Paul even says it here, and right after verse 32 in chapter 5, he says, Be ye therefore, because of what I've just said in chapter 4, because of what I just said in verse 32, be ye be therefore followers of God. In other words, as dear children. In other words, if these truths are truly received, then be followers of God, imitators of God, as dear children. Yet I fear as the perils of these latter days greatly increase, of which Paul speaks in Second Timothy, the first one leading those perils, men shall be lovers of themselves, but I fear as the perils of these latter days greatly increase, <coughs> excuse me, as evil men and seducers wax worse and worse, as the scoffers' cries grow louder and louder, <coughs> excuse me, and as ungodly men continue to creep in unawares, I fear that many truly sincere and simple-hearted believers, in their blind zeal to contend for the faith, are becoming divisive, schismatic, and unkind towards one another. We're forgetting these virtues of which Paul is speaking in our blind zeal to defend the truth. Many are being wounded by friendly fire, if I can so use the phrase. We do tend to be extreme. And have you ever seen, it's amazing, in the last 30 or 40 years, 
what's happened in the world, the false religions, false doctrines, things that are coming in. And Christians are being zealous. Yes, they want to contend for the faith, but sometimes they're blind in their blind zeal, they're forgetting what it is like. They're forgetting the virtues of which Paul is exercising us to, to one another, of being kind one to another and tenderhearted and forgiving. And, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but in most realms today of Christianity, when you mention these words, they immediately speak of, think of compromise. You're compromising. You tell me to be kind and tender-hearted, but you're actually compromising. I think a lot, I believe a lot of what Paul has been exercising in this entire chapter has all been lost in, in the heat of the battle, if I can say, amongst many Christians. Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? Remember that verse? The sons of thunder, John and James. Samaritan and others were not following Christ. And so they said, you know what? It's in the Old Testament. Elias did it. Lord, do you want us to follow Scripture and just call down fire and consume them? That was the intemperate zeal of brothers John and James against those who did not receive Christ. They even made claim, like I said, that they were following the same zeal as Elijah. They said, even as Elias, they used Scripture. What I'm doing is scriptural. Yet what is amazing is Christ's response to that. He strongly rebuked them, not so much for their request, but more so their spirit. He said, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. He doesn't directly rebuke the request. He doesn't say, well, that was true, Elias did that, or Elijah did that, but he rebukes the manner of spirit in which they wanted to do it. You see, a lot, if not much, is dependent on the manner of our spirit. And sometimes when you talk to Christians today about our holy Christian faith, the manner of their spirit is all but kind and tender-hearted and patient and long-suffering, but it's very combative and divisive and schismatic and harsh. Beloved, too often the impure feelings of our flesh are mingled with our zeal. We've got to be careful that that doesn't happen. Even in this present generation, the mere mention of these virtues here in verse 32, for many, <laughs> imply compromise. And then when somebody says, maybe you ought to think about being more loving, but they come back with a combative answer. And it just goes back and forth. Have you ever noticed that? I have. It has grown increasingly over the last five or ten years. It's as though these virtues are signs of weakness. Like I mentioned yesterday in my studying, I mentioned in the prayer how David was bold enough and strong enough and courageous enough to stand against a Goliath. Yet he was also humble enough and meek enough and tender enough towards Saul when he had the chance to kill him. David knew the balance of that. We need to be able to wield the sword 
of the Word of God properly against those who would be defying it and enemies of it. But we also, at the same time, need to have the tenderness and kindness and forgiving heart of which Paul exhorts us to be. And that divine balance does not come natural to our flesh. For Paul would confess that such virtues are characteristics of those who are followers of God. Be therefore followers of God. Be therefore, because of what you said, be followers, imitators of God, as dear children. Abba, Father. So let me begin this morning, and, and there's, there's enough in every one of these virtues. I'm going to try to get the first two this morning, but there's enough in every one of these virtues that really require and demand our deepest meditation to get out of concordance and look up these words individually. Some of them are not found in the exact formation or the wording of it, but you can find the spirit of it and spend time with that. When's the last time you and I have spent time looking at kindness? Or tenderheartedness. It's a hard word to find. It's only found twice in the Bible, once in the Old Testament, once here. But there's a lot of references to this virtue in Scripture. And forgiving one another, I I had no time to get on that one in this morning because that I believe is the epitome of what Paul is saying here. Over and over in New Test in the New Testament do we hear about God requiring us, demanding us, commanding us to forgive one another. And we fall far short of that. But that is possibly, Lord willing, next week. But let me begin with the first of these. Listen to this. And and it deserves our meditation. So please forgive me if I take my time with this because I really enjoyed this. And I also realized and was humbled by it that it lacks in my own heart. Watch what he says. And be kind one to another. That's more than just merely being sympathetic. To be kind is to be useful, according to the wording of this word and also the English dictionary. Listen to me. It's to be useful. It's to be helpful to others. Be useful. Be helpful. It's not just an emotion. Oh, I'm, I'm going to be kind to you. I'm going to show you that I like you. No, it's putting into action. It's doing something. It's being useful. It's being, it's being helpful to others. It's to be courteous in words and actions and that to one another. To the believers at Colossae, Paul writes, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, <clears throat> meekness, long-suffering. So when Paul exhorts us here to be kind one to another, he's saying be useful to one another. Be helpful to one another. This is just common sense spiritually spoken that every Christian should actually have an attitude for. Be helpful to others. Be useful to others. Look for occasions to help somebody. Many Christians today confine themselves to the or their spirituality to the four walls of the church or maybe even the four walls of their home. They don't reach out to be useful or helpful to others. They're not looking for occasions to be able to make other people's lives maybe a little easier, a little better. That's part of Christianity. But oh, I hear these people now saying, oh, wait a minute, you're getting back to a works thing. No, it's Christian character to be kind to be useful, to be helpful to others. 
And that we do that not simply by picking out moments and times. Well, let's go down to the street and feed the poor. We did that for years in Germany. But beloved, this is something we should be practicing every day of our lives. Little acts of usefulness and helpfulness to others, being kind to people on a daily basis. You make it an habitual thing, dearly beloved, then you understand what kindness is. Helping those that are maybe in need, being useful to others who need assistance. These are the characteristics of a true Christian. Kindness is one of the first fruits or evidences of charity. You look at 1 Corinthians 13, we won't go there, but 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Charity suffereth long and is kind. It suffereth long, comma, and is kind. It's one of the first fruits of charity. Charity suffereth long, comma, and is kind. It's useful. It's helpful. That's what charity is. It's helpful. It's really actually, when you look at Scripture, it's the basics of true Christianity. Many of our forefathers called it the ABCs of Christianity. Why would you want to be proudful in the deep doctrines of God when you don't understand the basics of being a Christian? You're not useful. You're not helpful. You're not reaching out to others. You're not trying to be kind. Kindness is not merely wishing one well. but charity being useful and helpful to others. There are many people who are well-wishers. But true kindness is charity in action. And again, we might look at that and say, well, that just that's just common sense, isn't it, preacher? Shouldn't every Christian do that? Well, then why isn't every Christian doing that? It is the evidence and exercising of true love and grace, if you ask me. That's what the Scripture says. It is the evidence and exercising of true love and grace, being kind and useful to people. Over in Ephesians chapter 2, same epistle. Let me show you this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Watch this. Listen to the wording again. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherein he loved us, thanks God for mercy loving us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace who you saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now watch this, verse 7. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. God exercised his grace by kindness to us through Christ. It's, it's an attribute of God. His kindness. I love that wording. His exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness towards us. So if we've experienced that, would we not have a desire to exercise or to do the same thing that God did? If God has been exceeding kind to us, would we not want to reflect that attribute and virtue to others? Let me show you kindness because God has shown me great kindness. But no, today that's a sign of weakness for many. 
stay with me because at the end of this, I want to emphasize the importance of doing this for God, not for men. Because if you do these things for men, you're going to be disappointed. You follow me? Getting ahead of myself, you're going to be disappointed. But if you do it for God, for His honor, for His glory, if men applaud you, recognize you, or reject you and ignore you, it will not matter because you're doing it for God. You know how a Christian can keep persevering? We looked at that in our Constitution yesterday. It's because God's preserving us, yes. But it's because we live our life in accordance to God's glory. If we try to live our life in accordance with what man expected, this is why many fall away. They've never known God. We live and do all things to the glory of God. That's what keeps us going. It's not whether man accepts us or rejects us, because believe me, I've lived long enough in the Christian life to realize there's going to be many who reject you. What keeps us going? We do it all for God. We do it for Christ's sake. We're not looking for rewards from men. We're looking to glorify God. We're looking to please God. And so whether man acknowledges me or not, it plays no difference to me. The peace and heart I have in my soul because I'm doing it for God, it doesn't matter if anybody recognizes me. Let me kind of bring this down to some personal experience before we move on here. Apply this to yourself. You remember the last time you did something to somebody that was useful and helpful? The sense of gratitude that those people had? And even if they didn't, the sense of gratitude and happiness you have? I was talking to a lady in the post office the other day, and some gentleman came in, and he'd lost, his wife was terminally ill, didn't have any family, and he was... He was rambling on. He was just going on and on. Nobody else was in the post office. And I'm sweeping the floor. and I'm not trying to listen, but you can't help. And, I'm, and he's going on and on about his wife and what's happened. And this lady's so patient with him, just listening. And yeah, well, I, you know, I'm sorry. You know, she didn't try to rush him out. She's listening. He, I'm not lying to you. Three times he went to the door, was leaving. And he started another came back. And, and at the end of it, he goes, you know, I, I really don't have anybody to talk to. I mean, you could probably tell. And when he did finally leave, I looked at her and I said, you know what, I, I highly respect you for what you did. And she goes, what? I said, not many people would take the time out to listen to him. They're too busy. I said, but you took the time out, you listened to him. I said, you'd do well in a nursing home. <laughs> I said, you took time, you listened to him. In being kind one to another, there's a satisfaction and a joy that God puts in our hearts if we do it for him it doesn't require any reward except the smile of God and you know there are a lot of people out there that don't need great kinds of actness to make their life a little bit happier and better be kind one to another Take time out for that, not merely when it's convenient. Kindness is an attribute of God which brings the greatest comfort and encouragement to every true believer in their greatest hour of need. The kindness of God, knowing that God is kind. Psalm 119.76, listen to this, what the psalmist says. Let, I pray thee, thy merciful kindness be for my comfort. 
according to thy word unto thy servant. Now, it's according to the word. He's seen in the word. He claimed it. He told it. Not like the charismatics today, but he said, let I pray thee, thy merciful kindness be for my comfort. Thy merciful kindness. Yeah, but seriously. And I, I, I repented of this this last week. How often have I thought about the kindness of God? He's kind to us every day. His loving kindness is always there. I wrote down something the other day. I don't know whether it's going to lead into something the Lord wants me to preach on, but just a few questions. And we could probably pop up with the verses right away, but questions like, will God ever stop being kind to us? Will God ever forsake us or leave us? Will God ever stop loving me? Will God ever stop forgiving me? And I just started writing these questions down. I don't know where it's going to leave. I started lighting And when I got to the end of all those questions, I said no to all these. Then why don't I spend more time contemplating them? Look at Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54, 7 and 8. Come on. 54, 7, and 8. Listen to this. I love this verse. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. Then thank God for the small moments if it helps me discover great mercies. You follow me? Verse 8. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment. A moment. Both of them are moments. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord. Everlasting kindness will I have mercy. Not just merely I'll have everlasting mercy, with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee. Forsaken for a moment, wrath for a moment, oh, but great mercies and everlasting kindness. And yet, and I want to emphasize this, and I know there might be some people that disagree with me amongst the ranks of the hypers, but, and yet, though not equaling his great kindness towards his elect in Christ, God shows us a greater source, a greater measure of kindness than he ever does or ever will those that are without Christ. God's kindness still extends to all mankind in general. It doesn't matter to me what the hypers think. That sun up in the sky for all mankind is an act of kindness. The rain he brings down on the earth to water the harvest is an act of kindness. That man is even breathing a life of breath is an act of kindness. People have such a hard time balancing that out. They think they can figure God completely out. There's no way that God could show us inner kindness and then still reject Him and turn Him into hell. God's kindness is every morning to be seen to all mankind every time the sun rises or it rains. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we all know this verse well. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, verse 43. 
You have heard that it hath been said, Matthew chapter 5, 43, you have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy, but I say unto you, love your enemies. Let me ask you a question. Would Christ ask us to do something that he's not capable of doing? Figure that one out. Okay, you love your enemies, but don't expect me to because I can't do both of them. It's, it's almost like the people that believe God can't be a God of wrath, because how can he be a God of wrath when he's a God of love? And they can't balance them together. And people are going, oh, you don't understand. Same thing here. Christ says, don't hate your enemies. He said, I want you to love them. Listen to this. <laughs> love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. That's pretty hard to be. But why does he exhort us to do that? Verse 45, here's the key, that you may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven. In other words, that's an attribute of the children of God. The children of God. If it's the attribute of the children of God, there's got to be some aspect of God in here, right? The Scriptures, people have to rest to form their own private personal opinions and doctrines about God. Let Scripture speak for Scripture. If you don't understand what God is doing, it might be because He's God and we're not. Everybody's got to think they've got to figure out God. It ain't going to happen. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for He maketh His Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just, and on the unjust, for if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans be ye therefore perfect, mature, even as your father? Again, he said, this is the will of your father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Ooh, a lot of people have a hard time doctrinally putting that in their pet peeve doctrine. <laughs> I don't want to be that way. I don't want to be critical. But it just surprises me how people have to rest other scriptures to make their... Don't rest scriptures. Let scripture speak for itself. And when we're ignorant, which we constantly are, when we're unknowing or we, we, we can't comprehend the depth of it, then leave it to God to show us in time. But don't try to turn it or wrestle it to say something it doesn't. Kindness is an attribute of God that God wants His children to reflect as they walk amongst men, and especially amongst one another. Kindness is truly a virtue which has been lost and even ignored amongst many in their zeal to contend for the faith against the enemies of Christ, and as more and more men become lovers of themselves. Be kind one to another. Ephesians chapter 4. Bear with me a little. Ephesians chapter 4. Wonderful word, kind. Be kind one to another. Now, I'm, I'm going to briefly go over this one. It's used one time in the, in the New Testament. It's here, but it's, it's amazing. Verse 32. And be kind one to another, tender-hearted. You know what tender-hearted is? And it goes together with kindness. Useful, helpful. It's pity. It's compassion towards the sufferings. Listen to me. It's compassion towards the sufferings. It's pity. It's the opposite, or the opposite meaning is to be calloused and hard-hearted. That's the opposite meaning. Tender-hearted is opposite of callous. In other words, it's compassion towards the suffering. 
to be concerned about the sufferings of other people and sympathetic towards them. That's what tenderhearted means, be tenderhearted. Now, I know many will come and say, well, he's talking about Christians. We need to exercise that towards Christians only. You don't think that it would be proper or that it's biblical for Christians to be tenderhearted towards all mankind? When the Lord walked amongst men, he looked on the multitudes and it said he had compassion on them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. When he stood over Jerusalem and he knew that they were going to crucify him, he said, oh, I would have taken you as a mother hen and her chicks and took you into my wings, but you would not. He showed compassion. When he was on Calvary, he showed compassion. But oh, man has a hard time balancing that between God's election and sovereignty of God and love for his children. They're frustrated by it. First Peter 3.8. I'm going to ask you a question here in a minute. I'm going to let you dwell on it and take it home and think about it. But First Peter 3.8. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Not rending evil for evil, railing for railing, but counterized blessing. Sounds almost like Paul, huh? Peter's teaching the same thing. Be compassionate, having compassion one of another. You know, mankind has become so callous and hardened by sin that he cares not about the sufferings of others, nor is he sympathetic towards their pain. That should not be the characteristic of a Christian. When the Lord walked upon the, the widow woman and her only son, and they were carrying out in the coffin. The Lord had compassion on her. When Lazarus was dead, you know the verse in John 11. I know he's the beloved of Christ. Christ loved him. I know he's one of him, but still Christ wept. Even though Christ, the resurrection life, knew that he wasn't going to stay there, he's going to write, Christ still wept. Compassion. What is so wrong for Christians to have pity and compassion towards people who suffer? Paul said, for all seek their own and not the things of Christ. They become lovers of themselves. Isn't that amazing that in in Second Timothy, the perils of the times, the very first thing on that list, the perils of the latter days, men shall be lovers of themselves. Although they don't care about other people. They have no compassion for the sufferings of other people. You know, such callousness was one of the first effects of sin's entrance into the world. That hard-heartedness, callousness. God looked down at Cain and says, where's your brother? What did Cain say? Am I my brother's keeper? I don't care about him. Mark my words, there's a lot in that. Where's your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Beloved, such blessed and divine graces, kindness and tenderheartedness, comes natural to those who have truly, and that on a daily basis, 
experience the great kindness and tender mercies of God. Let me, let, me, let me tell you something. I believe one of the reasons why these virtues are not exercised a lot amongst God's children is because they don't spend enough time meditating upon God's kindness and tenderheartedness towards them. His tender mercies and grace. The more we spend time on that, the more we're going to be influenced by that and we're going to want to walk as dear children of God. Go back to Ephesians and let me wind this down real quick. And I'm going to show you something. We'll close. Back to Ephesians 4. And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Now, I love the wording here. I mentioned it yesterday, and I want to spend more time on it next week because I believe it is so essential in this day of unforgiveness. Forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake. You know what? You know where that puts that? God for Christ's sake. In other words, Christ's sacrifice for our sins is what brought us the forgiveness of God. He's elevating this to a measure that you and I in this lifetime could never meet. It's like the seven times 70. How often should I forgive my brother? Seven times seven. There's something about forgiving one another that God says you're going to have to be extremely above average and normal in exercising this grace because you're going to have to exercise it as I forgave you for my son's sake. That is an extremely high level. And that it's so often done in the measure of our ability to forgive. I'm not even going to get on that right now. Now, what's going to enable us to do or maintain these things in this Christian life? And I'll close with this. When so many people seem to be unthankful, ungrateful, when so many people appear to be unkind, when people don't appreciate it, how can I continue to do this? Okay? The Bible says that everything that we do as Christians, we should do all for the glory of God, correct? Do all to the glory of God. Never, never for ourselves. All to the glory of God. Let me read a meditation here that I read last week and I'll close this down. It says this about service. Listen closely. He said, and I quote, O Christ, who made himself servant of all, I would set my heart and my affections upon you and upon you alone, for I can only serve others rightly when such service is undertaken from first to last as an act of devotion offered to you. Not to others, to you. He goes on to say, in serving you, I am free from my need for praise of others. So that even if my kindness are shed from scarred hearts as rain from a sloped tin roof, my joy will not be dimmed, for I will know that you have received and remembered each act of sacrifice and reckoned it as love rendered to you. End of quote. I thought, how amazing that is. How true it is. Too often, beloved, we get discouraged and disappointed in serving others because we're doing it for ourselves or for the wrong reasons. Do all things to the glory of God and every service to others 
whether seen by men or not, beloved, will be a source of great joy, knowing God is glorified. So how can we continue to be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake? Do it for Christ. And I guarantee you, as the meditation said, every act will be an act of joy because you're doing it for Him and not for others. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear God, for your word. We thank you, Lord, how it it searches the deep, deep things of our hearts and our affections. Lord, it challenges us. And Lord, it encourages us. It helps us to see that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Help us, dear God, we pray, to have one eye, and that's towards your glory. May we ever be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. And may we do these things in reference to you and how you've been so kind and, and tender and merciful to us. Lord, may we meditate more upon your goodness in your mercy that your light might shine through us that others see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Father, I pray that you'd be honored and glorified in all that we say and do. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.